Several weeks ago, I presented a training seminar for faculty, staff, and students at my university titled Owning Our Ignorance, Self-Study of the Difficult. The central question or aim of this training was to have participants critically reflect on topics about which they are ignorant. What do we not know? How can we learn about that which we do not know and then use that knowledge toward the ends of changing the world or changing our lives? Books are, of course, one main resource I use in my life to become less ignorant. And today's episode centers on a book about a place I know little about, China. Because the river, it's funny, it gives the people there sort of purpose and personality, but the river itself also is just, it's the force throughout in the book that he mentions it so many times and talks about it. It's flowing upstream, downstream, all the different parts that he mentions is this, again, it's this passing of time, it's change, but it's the same. It's still water. It's the same substance, but it's different each time. It's never the same. And um, who was it that said you could never step and step in the same river twice? I mean, that's river town. I mean, it was the Yangtze River, the Wu River. It's it's changing. China's changing. This place, and especially, is never going to be the same because it's going to be flooded by the Three Gorges. Today, a conversation about Peter Hessler's book, River Town, Two Years on the Yangtze. Partially memoir, history, cultural anthropology, nature writing, and political expose, this book captures a very particular moment in a changing China, the mid-1990s, through the eyes of Hessler's experiences teaching English and traveling through China. As you'll hear, the book left me a little less ignorant and a lot more curious about a country so mythologized and misunderstood in the psyche of people living in the United States. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Michael Hilliard. Michael was suggested as a guest by Rick Montalongo, who appeared on episode R3. This is also a sort of landmark episode in the podcast series, as Michael represents the first guest in the series who I did not know before we talked. The rhizome is growing, and I have no doubt Michael and I will have many more conversations in the years to come. He is wise, thoughtful, inquisitive, and a change agent in his own right, with some incredible life experiences. We recorded this conversation in August of 2021. One of the things that got me interested in doing this podcast and just that I'm fascinated by is the history of people's reading lives. So I always ask people to talk to me about this broad question of how do you think about the history of your reading life? Or if I ask you a question like that, what does it make you think about? There is a, a, a there's sort of a BC uh, or a BR, we'll call it BR before reading. And I mean that in a serious way. Mm. And then there's the 
the AR, the after reading, which has it all. I remember exactly when it was. Um, I was at Southwestern University where I got my bachelor's from. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I had been reading a lot of philosophy at that point. As a comm major, I studied a lot of rhetorical theory. We studied a lot of classical uh, philosophy, a lot of ancient Greece and stuff. And and I just really got into reading it to the point to where I was always looking for a new perspective. I started to read Rousseau. I started to read Marx. I started to read um, just about any philosopher, Kant and human, anybody that I could get my hands on. I wanted to read it. And so a little experience here, I'll tell you just real quick. I was at the library one day and this was after 9-11. Um, and I was at the library at Southwestern and I had never ventured into this back area of this library before. And there was a little door and it was a, it was a tiny little door. And, and I didn't know what it didn't have a sign. There was nothing to it, nothing marked. For all I knew, it was locked. So I decided to go and, and check it. It was unlocked. I didn't know this about the university. None of the uh, recruiters or anybody told me. I walked into this. It was their rare book collection library. It was in this mm. really dark room. And all it has was, and of course, Southwestern is a Methodist school. So this is sort of, a, they had this large stained glass window and the light was coming through. Every afternoon, I started going into this little place and I would sit there and pick up one of these old books. I had no idea who they were and just started reading. I would just mm. open it up and started reading. And I found more pleasure in that for many reasons where I was in my life, mm-hmm. I found more pleasure in that experience than I ever thought possible. And it really started my serious reading life. And mm-hmm. I went from being just someone who had to read for school or I read for fun to someone who read for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And reading then after that, I would say that reading began to guide my professional life mm-hmm. rather than my professional life dictating what I'm reading. What did you discover? Like, do you remember what you were reading in the rare books room? Like, do you remember anything about, you know, this, this is the first time I read that and whatever the case is? I do. It was the social contract. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was the first thing I picked up and I ended up reading uh, probably three quarters of that book before uh, I eventually the room got locked. I don't know if somebody figured out if somebody saw me going in uh, because it was behind the stacks. I mean, this door yeah. was behind the stacks in a way. Again, it was a it's a random place. I just couldn't believe it was there and that nobody knew about it. And uh, it was dusty and it just smelled of must and, you know, old text. Old and it was, yeah. Yeah. It was great. So like, you know, yeah. So um, I, I remember who that's, that was my introduction to Rousseau because I had been reading philosophy, but nobody ever told me about Rousseau. I wasn't studying that period. I wasn't studying the French and you know, Enlightenment or the French Revolution or anything. So none of the Victor Hugo's or Rousseau came into my being. It was mm-hmm. mostly ancient Isocrates, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These are the guys mostly that I was focused on. And so this took me into a whole different direction. And naturally, you read Rousseau, you read Marx, you start reading into some other things you go into. And next thing you know, you're in China. <laughs> so, you know, um, Seemed like a natural progression, I guess, right? I mean, looking back on it, but well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> in some ways, I mean, maybe it's a natural progression. So, okay, so one of the things you said uh, a few minutes ago was that you said you, you know, this before reading and after reading. So your your reading life starts to take on this very serious nature, and I think you said you started letting reading guide your professional life rather than your professional life guide your reading. What do you see as the distinction there? Um, Purpose, intention, passion. Uh, You know, right now, 
I think in a, in a way I look at, at um, our situations, both as educators, right? So a lot yes. of times you may have to follow along with the journals, a lot of the research having to do with learning, psychology of learning, the sociology of the classroom, the philosophy behind how to get messages, whatever it may be. And we, we do that and we enjoy doing that. I, I do it as well. I try to do it more for obviously the adolescents, the 13, 14 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I do for my profession. And it's, and that's what I think most people, when they become adults, they, they read material mm-hmm. they need to read to be better at their job or to keep up with the research or to keep up with whatever um, is, is, is going to help them make more money or be more successful. In this case, it was reading was telling me, I you looked at it as reading was a way that guided my path. And I just felt like in many ways, God would put this uh, text in front of me mm. And inspire mm. me, mm. and I just follow along, and um, mm. that has been the case ever since I read Rousseau in that library that day. Mm-hmm. How I feel about society, how I feel about, um, uh, well, especially American society, it was a, an introduction to a different way of thinking about society and how people live and how people treat each other and what our obligations ought to be. And he was a Christian man as well, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it led to this and it led to that. And now I just continue to, to, you know, to do that. Um, you know, there's a, um, there's after September 11th, in fact, it was, I just wanted to quote something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just in fact took a book. So I, I think this will, I think this will be okay. Um, but it's Isaiah. I, in fact, I'll just point it, it's Isaiah 26, 20. Uh-huh. Um, and I'll put this here, go my people enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out his dwelling to punish the people of their earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. And I think about um, September 11th and maybe all the sins of the American society and the things, the ways that we've abused a lot of things, the planet, the people, uh, different things. And to me, that was, Sort of like, so I went and shut the door literally in a library room and closed and started to read. Um, you were in that college was, in 2001 or? I, I was in college. Yeah. I was sense. at a library, as a matter of fact, when September 11th happened. Um, yeah. yeah. So like now, you know, when you're saying like you read things and it's influencing your professional life or maybe your personal life, do you just allow books to come to you? Or are you actually quite intentional now about what it is that you're going to read? I'm still, I'm, I'm very intentional about what I read, but about what I'm going to read um, or about what I read. But, and you know, sometimes when you just crack open a book, one of the best things to do is just open a book randomly in the spot and start reading. Hmm. Um, because of the way that writers are um, trained to write, Sometimes just the best thing is just to get straight in like you would in a conversation where you go, excuse me, what were y'all just talking about? You know, sometimes that's the most part because it catches your attention. And if you'll go and just crack open a book in the middle and start reading, then you can go back and be like, yeah, I want to read this. And that's something that either it grabs you or it doesn't. And I think that just like that conversation, if you're not, if you're not interested in when, when you're reading the meat of it, you're not going to be interested reading the intro. You're not going to be interested Mm. reading the conclusion. You need to dive right in and see. And, and again, that's one of those, because when you are just reading for passion and you're just reading to find a message or to find a way uh, of, of changing your thought or being challenged, 
uh, intellectually, you know, that's the way to do it as opposed to where if you genuinely need to learn something, yes, you have to read from the beginning, but that's, that's kind of how I do. I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of books that I do like that, but some of them just come about. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know how it is almost like a light beaming down on something and you're just like, no, that's weird that it's right there at that point. Let me go, let me go see. Um, what have you been reading of late that is like in either of those categories? Like you just flipped it open and you're like, this is something I need to read or the light shining down on this particular thing. Yeah. And you know, it actually, it's uh, the splendid and the vile by Eric Larson. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a, mm-hmm. and I have not really had the chance. There's, there are actually two books that I'm doing and I keep them in two different rooms and I spend a lot of time in those rooms. And when I'm wanting a brain break, I read I'll just pick up these books and start reading. And I really need to go back to the beginning and start reading them, uh, you know, in their entirety, because I'm very interested in both of them, but one of them is the splendid and the vile. And it's about um, the uh, it's about the, the blitz over, uh, over London during world war II, And it talks about the pilot. It was trained by the German Luftwaffe and, and, and every just their personalities. It's just kind of what I've seen so far is the reaction and what happened and the, the, just the absolute um, tyranny and destruction and um, just the unfortunate happenstance of, of that, how it came to that. But the other one actually um, it's actually in another room and I, I can't remember the title, so I'm not going to bring it up. I, I can't remember it, but it was, it's actually really interesting too. It has to do with the, the cold war as a matter of fact. So you read Rivertown, you, you found Rivertown, and then that's what led you to China? Right. So um, I was at um, working in Winter Park at a ski resort, didn't know what I wanted to do. Like I said, I was a journalist who has, uh, was trying to rehabilitate. Um, I'd had differences with my editor. I realize now that you don't get to control what you write as a reporter, but you mm. just put the work in and then your editor decides to uh, carve it up how he or she wants. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up, and you just take the fluff for it after that. So, um, or the flack, I should say. <laughs> and uh, where is Winter Park? Because I'm not familiar. In Colorado. In Colorado. In Colorado. Okay. Right. So you so, got stationed there. You were working for a paper or something? Not at all. I went there just to write. I was a poet, um, wanting to be an aspiring poet, inspiring. I still loved writing and I still wanted to continue just uh, my reflections. And I was young enough to just say, hey, I do want to follow my passions and, but it was a place that just allowed me to, to, to work, uh, but enjoy my time after I worked, um, mm-hmm. based essentially no responsibility afterwards. Um, and the mountains are just an, uh, inspirational, you know, place. It's a backdrop to anything in life as far as I'm concerned. And yeah. so, um, I was, I went to a library I mean, it was, you know, winter park, it's covered in snow. And I went to a library one afternoon and, um, was checking out books. I got my card there. And I think one of the first books that I checked out was Rivertown. And I took it back to my, um, I shared a house with five other boys, five other guys. And uh, I went back and I read it and um, I just decided from then on, I was going to China. Uh-huh. One word, let me ask you this. And here's what I was trying to, 
if if I say the word China before you read this book, if I said China, what's the what what would be one word that you would come up with? Probably first thing off your mind, socialist. Okay, so you think of it in terms of its sort of government collective government sort of organization. Um, for yeah. me, it goes back to: Do you remember the movie um, Big Trouble in Little China? No, I never seen it. I'm going to have to watch. You never it. Seen it. So Kurt Russell in that movie, I, I think about, I always think about Kurt Russell and I always think about this. There was this older Chinese man. Uh, and so when I was younger, I saw that movie and there was an older Chinese man that was more of that Confucius type. Um, you know, you, t- you were talking about the feudal China time with the robes and the long pinky fingernail and the, mm-hmm. the jewelry. Also, he's in there and he's very mystical, magical guy. When I think of China, that's what I think of mystical. To me, the word is always mystical, magical, um, mysterious. To me, that's China, and I was always been China, and so it's different when the when the reveal happens, and the curtain is pulled aside, and you realize that China is like any other country. The people are like any others, and I think that um, you know Peter kind of was the same way. There was a fascination with old China. Most of us expats living over there, as a matter of fact. Um, I, I feel like we all wanted to be alone. And he, Peter talks about this in his book a lot. We all wanted to be alone. He didn't want to be with Adam. He wanted to be Peter in China. Yeah. You know, and experience it on his own with his own mind, his own experience, nobody talking his ear, nobody telling him, Hey, did you see that? Hey, what do you think? Hey, I hate that. Hey, whatever. Just let him form his own. And I, everybody that I knew over there was the same way. They went over there all saying, Shh, don't load me with your thoughts, your opinions, your biases. Let me make up my own mind about what I experience in this country, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that Peter went through that and he walked through it on his own and he came out the, the other end with the thoughts he had. And that's fair enough. At least he did it. I feel like, you know, he came up with it on his own. He gave it an honest try to just walk his own walk through the country. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that this book, Rivertown, really opened my eyes to, which I knew this already, but it's like when you read a book like this, you just realize how uneducated and ignorant we are about histories outside of the United States. I would say most Americans are also ignorant of their own history, but um there's just so much in this book that I was like, you know, I'm Googling things, right? Like, I'm like, I don't know about the May 4th movement of 1919. I don't know anything about, uh, you know, like, I know their names, right? Like, I know Mao Zedong, you know, like, I know about the Cultural Revolution. I know about the idea of, like, you know, opening China up to out, you know, to trying to, like, do cultural exchange and stuff. But I am just suddenly aware of my own ignorance around so much stuff in Chinese history that has really happened just in the last in you know 50 to 60 years is what Hessler does a really good job of helping you to realize that like China has been through huge dramatic shifts in a very short period of time and we we don't know anything about it in the United States nothing great point great point and from Really, it's almost like having a, a super dwarf, you know, right next to us. And the gravitational pull is immense, but we don't realize that it's even that it's even pulling. 
You know, I mean, it's a superstar um, country over there, huge, 1.5 billion people. Its landmass is as big as ours. It's, you know, which makes it roughly the third, either depending on who you're talking to, either the third or the fourth um, largest country uh, landmass in the world. I mean, and yet we know very little about that it, in our lifetime. Pete, I don't know how old you are, Pete, but I, I, I'm 41. You're 41. Okay. I was born in 76. Okay. The, the, the very year that Mal died. So the yeah. cultural revolution ended the year that I died. Mm-hmm. And that revolution um, was immensely important to their people and how it affected them and how the Chinese are today. So a lot of the things in the book um, are still very much in the Confucian mind. And he talks about it a little bit, but also very much affected by Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping. And the leaders of the modern day China, and I consider it modern day, anything after World War II, I suppose I'd consider modern day. But, you know, even even the part on um, and I'll, I'll let you check this out because I marked it and I wanted to bring it up because it seems like a good point to break up. Right on page 70. Yeah, um, it seems like a good time to bring this up. And it's the sure. second paragraph. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about the Confucian sort of an old way. And this is kind of the thing. It says, uh, he says, it was the Chinese way. Success was expected and failure criticized and promptly corrected. You were right or you were putui. There was no middle ground. As I became bolder with the language, I started experimenting with new words and new structures. And this was good, but it was also a risk. I would finish a series of sentences using vocabulary that I knew teacher Liao didn't expect me to know. And I would swear that I could see her flinch with unwilling admiration. And yet she would say, putui and correct the part that had been wrong. Mm-hmm. I grew to hate Boudoui. It sound mocked me. And that to me was just a big part. That's that Confucian sort of, they used to have to take that civil service exam and you either made it or you didn't. Either your family was honored or it was shamed. Yeah, I mean, you know, it made me think about uh, one of the sections I put on the notes was this idea about a changing China or like the contradictions that were arising in the society. And you know, on page 39, he was talking about, you know, talking to his students to try to get them to explain some of these contradictions, you know, and he says, I asked the students to explain what these phrases meant, historical materialism, the people's democratic dictatorship, socialism with Chinese characteristics, but they were never able to answer in clear and simple language. It was, as Orwell would say, a case in which words and meaning had completely parted company or whatever the case Mm. is. And, um, you know, I think in the U.S., the, the vision that we have of China is that, you know, first of all, people will hear China and they'll hear Communist Party, they'll hear socialism. They have this very, you know, narrow minded view of what that means. They think that everybody's living in poverty uh, and, you know, because that's the way that we envision communism and socialism. And yet, it seems like from Hessler's description of China that it's very entrepreneurial. It's people are making money, they are serving their communities in particular types of ways, at least economically. And I'm not saying it doesn't sound bad. I know that there's a lot of poverty, but I guess it makes you think about the fact that like, that's true in the United States as well. <laughs> like you can go to parts of the United States and people who didn't make it quote unquote into the universities, into the colleges, into the civil servant positions, into the government roles 
are the people who end up having to do this type of entrepreneurial work that is, in fact, in many cases, going to either leave them in poverty or is going to catapult them into richness. This is, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg story, right? Like, or the Elon Musk or whatever. So I don't know. I'm just thinking about like all of our societies and our ways of understanding each other are just riddled with misinformation, contradictions, and we don't know how to deal with those types of things as nation states, I don't think. Because in the U.S., we have a particular story we want to tell about China. I think that's absolutely a brilliant observation. I think it's spot on. And I think that it's one of, um, it's just like we do with people. It's just like we judge people based on their clothing, their cars, or whatever it may be. It's It's the same thing. We do it from the personal level all the way up to the national level. And so us, the way that we um, sort of pigeonhole China is that way. But on page nine, he actually says it best when he says in paragraph two, he says, nothing was quite what it seemed. And that's what, and that was how life went in those early days, everything uncertain and half a step off. And that was because of this change that they were going through. I think, especially between the times of Deng Xiaoping um, taking over uh, after, after, uh, 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 after the 89 Tiananmen Square, I think Deng Xiaoping basically just said, look, the reform and opening is happening. At the same time, you've got an old guard who still believe in the, 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 the iron rice bowl, the pension system, Mao Zedong, the, 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 the revolution, permanent revolution. We've, we're, we're constantly striving to, to do away with feudalism, even though feudalism had been dealt away with 70 years before by that time. And mm-hmm. it's like people still, it's a half step. I mean, the irony is we see this brilliant um, parading going on between the, in the Chinese military with their goose step. They're so perfect and everybody's the same mm-hmm. height. We see it in the Olympics, with the drummers and everything. And yet the fact is that society is a half step off because you've got these pensioners with this idea, the promise of a lifelong state-sponsored employment and taking care of. You've got entrepreneurs with the capitalistic mind. You've got you know, people challenging both systems on both sides. And it's no different. We were, we're so used to here in America being stable in one thought, which is liberty, pursuit of happiness, da-da-da-da, you know, all that stuff. But China wasn't, that's not the tradition of China. They changed, they flip-flopped twice within the same century, twice, from feudalism to communism, from or socialism, and socialism to sort of a socialism with, or, or capitalism with, with Chinese characteristics, as he said. Yeah. And these are major shifts in society. And how do people who are alive within that same century, how do they adjust to these differences? Um, and, I, and that's why it seems a half step off, and he's absolutely correct, is nothing was certain. Nothing. And and we didn't know how to handle it. And I think that, you know, I mean, we, we I'm not going to go into modern politics, but I think it's changing yet again. I just think that the book and China itself is so full of ironies. Um, Mm -hmm. The country folk that I taught at universities, 
and many of the ones even at middle school, because um, I taught at private and public schools in China, they were some of the most focused yes. and some of the best students, and they fought their way out of their situation in a way that said, hey, we talk about socialists, we talk about China, we talk about capitalism with, with Chinese characteristics, but it was almost like this is the story of success. This is the story of, you know, every successful entrepreneur who took their steps in their pants with their own shoes and walked. And there's a great, in fact, it's, it's one of your quotes. It. It's, it's on yes. page 25. I mean, yeah, we've got to talk about this stuff as two educators, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's, it's funny because on the one hand, he talks about the guy, the old hundred names, it was the fisherman who he said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing that I don't need an education. My, this is my education, and I'm free to think freely because I'm not educated. Kind of a kind of a Roger Waters moment, if you will. You know, we don't need no education. You know, I, I just whatever. And then on the other hand, there are these who want to succeed, and what they see is an ever more increasing capitalistic country with competition. Um, and, the, and, and amongst people who, who, who just want to get out. And I loved this because they even said on page 24, going to page 25, education was a game and students played it. But in Fuling, they hadn't yet reached that point. Their intelligence was still raw. It smelled of the countryside, of sweat and muck, of night soil and ripening rapeseed and everything else that composed Sichuanese farmland. And in their thoughts were flashes of the land, glimpses of the same sort of hard beauty that had surrounded the teacher's college, where the campus ended in terraced fields that ran steep up the side of Raise the Flag Mountain, which, of course, raised the flag being a reference to communism, okay. socialism, the revolution. And all of this is happening underneath Raise the Flag Mountain. I mean, I think Hessler's brilliant in how he will place a lot of these monuments that we talk about, whether it's the riverbank, the river itself, raise the flag mountain, teachers college. And all of these are the characters in the book that we don't recognize as characters, they're places or they're monuments, but no, they are characters. In fact, representing certain philosophical thoughts, certain historical moments, or certain important facts, which prove his point as he tries to do. I, I loved the way that he talked about his students and the relationships that he built with his students and the way that he did it describe that these students were hungry for learning. They were hungry for doing things that in the American educational context, we would never think about that. You know, coupling your quote from page 25 is the quote that I pulled out from page 42, where he's talking about the ways that reflecting on American students, he would get depressed when he compares those students to Chinese students. And he says, you know, at times it depressed me. The Chinese had spent years deliberately and diligently destroying every valuable aspect of their traditional culture. And yet with regard to enjoying poetry, Americans had arguably done a much better job of finishing ours off. How many Americans could recite a poem or identify its rhythms? Every one of my fueling students could recite at least a dozen Chinese classics by heart. They still read books and they still read poetry. That was the difference. You know, he, he is enamored by his students and his students are so, I loved all the stories, Mike, about 
how they rewrote Hamlet, how they would <laughs> interpret the Rip Van Winkle story from, uh, you know, Washington Irving to their own environment, the Don Quixote story at the end. I mean, they just, the, the students there loved literature. They loved learning about this stuff. Now to your other point about the man, you, you, you know, you were, you were talking about this man who was much more open to speaking his mind because he was not educated. That's on pages 172 and 173. The quote I pulled from this yeah. is, is on page 173, where, you know, he tells the story about this man basically telling him everything, his own opinions, and he says what you said, you know, I can say all this because I'm not educated, that the education system as propaganda is what Peter is reflecting on here. And he's saying, the more I thought about this, the more pessimistic I was about the education that my students were receiving. And I began to feel increasingly ambivalent about teaching in a place like that. At the beginning of the book, he's super excited about the way that his students are really into the education and everything. By the end of the book, he's super pessimistic about the educational system as a propaganda machine, as a form of censorship, as a way that his students are not actually getting an education or they're getting a certain type of education that Absolutely. fuels nationalistic endeavors. Or hides opportunities and thoughts. Yeah. Is another way to, I mean, I think about what you said and the part you read about how at least they still read books, they read poetry, they understood it. But I think that going back to, I, I don't know if I, thought, I don't know if this is the one that you mentioned before, but it, mm -hmm. he even wrote on page forty-five. None of it could be explained. Well, he said, and I could make very little sense of most criticism, which seemed a hopeless mess of awkward words, deconstructionism, postmodernism, new historicism. Mm -hmm. None of it could be explained simply and clearly. Just as my feeling students stumbled when asked to find historical materialism or socialism with Chinese characteristics, you said it. I think that sometimes the meaning. The importance of things can be hidden in our own culture as a way to control because not allowing the depth of thought about the things that are going on around us, they are able to read Shakespeare and see the meaning and find and derive the, the purpose of, of Shakespeare's writings. In a lot of these cases, whether it's Hamlet um, or whether it was what was a, the Don Quixote, as you mentioned, and the meaning behind all that, because it's foreign and they don't expect that the students will make a connection. Oh, they're probably just struggling with the language as it is. How can they possibly understand the meaning? We don't have to worry about this being a message of liberty, personal freedom, um, imagination or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We're not going to educate you in your language about these things, though, because if we put those ideas out there, they could be dangerous. And I'm not saying they don't. I'm saying I doubt that they do. I mean, I'll admit to being enthralled with the poems of Dufu, but not understanding anything about what Dufu was writing about, really, other than the beauty of the writing itself, his reflections, um, because it was a time that I just, it's hard for me to understand that period of time, but I don't struggle to, to, uh, to uh, uh, derive meaning from Baudelaire when I read his um, haunting words, mm -hmm. you know, because it's my own culture and we've been allowed to do it. I think that the students there are allowed to look at Baudelaire and be like, wow, the passion, the darkness, the spirit, the, the depravity, you know, the evil. 
that exists under this man's words, you know, they're allowed to see that, but let's not see the evil or, or, um, or let's not see the light behind the words of Thomas Jefferson, or let's not see the light behind um, the words of Thomas Paine, because that would be more dangerous politically. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, when you asked what is a word that people would think about when, when, if you were to say China, what's the word, you know, and I said socialism, but like sure. another word that I would have said is, you know, propaganda or, you know, all these other types of things. Like we think that we're trained in our country to think of communist countries uh, as propaganda machines. And certainly Hessler talks about this in the book, but, you know, to his frustration at the end of the book with you know, his kind of pessimism about the educational system in China and the way that they will allow you to do some things and not allow you to do other things. What I thought was genius about the book was that in education, in politics, in democracy, socialism, in individualism versus communitarianism, what Hessler did quite masterfully for me was he was trying to make an American reader say, are we really any different in the United States, right? Like if, you, if you're an educator right now, you cannot help but think that our government is trying to censor certain things from students' curriculum. We are literally living in a time where our governments are passing bills outlawing the teaching of race, saying that you can't discuss this thing or that thing. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me that people in this country would probably say that the government controls too much in China when in fact our own government is doing so much to control what it is that we are and are not allowed to teach in our own schools, our, our own colleges and universities. You brought up such a great point. So you were, you were saying that about, our, about what we're allowed and not allowed. And I think that um, as we feel like China is trying to be more like America, how much is it America's becoming more like China, you know, oh, at the same that time. that is a brilliant point. You know, are we, are they pulling us in, whether we're pulling, instead of us pulling them in? I just, the, the book, you, you brought up the point about that, about, and, and bringing in current events with what he was saying in the book and how he masterfully showed the idea that how different are we really? It says, well, yeah, now that you say it, we're not, we're really not we're in fact becoming more like them in that way and what's funny is as they have brought us onto the trail not saying this is deliberate but as we have gotten on the same road as them it's almost like they're walking back because as i said new leadership is taking them back into a way that's different from how Deng xiaoping uh hu jintao and the modern day leadership in china were kind of envisioned china and those are the two guys that you know, Peter Hessler would have benefited from a China that those two guys, you know, uh, well, maybe not Hu Jintao, but definitely Deng Xiaoping brought about. So I'm wondering, <laughs> I think you, I think you made a great point there. Well, and, you know, he reiterates it on page 192 also, that, you know, another quote that uh, the book is just chock full of so much, but <laughs> he, you know, he says about this, this idea of like, is America like China is China like America on page 192 he says, I realized that these myths were a sort of link between America and China. Both countries were arrogant enough to twist some of their greatest failures into sources of pride. 
you know, all of the, all of the stuff about, you know, that's the section of the book where he's talking about the great wall of China and how the great wall of China was this like failure in terms of, and, you know, again, that's something that I just, I did not realize until I read Hessler's book, you know, we're taught the great wall of China was this wall that was built to keep out all of these people. He's in the Northern part of China walking on the great wall. And he says, the wall is not great. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a three foot wall. You can literally step over the wall, right? Like I had no conception of this, Mike. I was like completely floored by this. And, but he's saying, you know, we've taken this thing which is really a failure in our country. And we've turned it into this giant mythology that builds all this nationalistic rhetoric. And now the Great Wall of China is the Great Wall of China. And people think that's what you have to see when you go there. And it's not that great. We do that in America all the time. The Alamo, we think the Alamo is this like, you know, in Texas, we have this story about the Alamo as, you know, oh, they, they fought to save the Texas Republic and all this kind of stuff. And we're finally getting to a point where we can start having honest conversations about like, no, the Alamo was really not this like grandstanding type of a thing, but we've turned it into this in Texas, this Texas nationalistic thing. I don't know. I just, there's so many moments in the book where this comes up and Hessler does such a great job of, if you're a careful reader, he doesn't criticize America for it, but he makes you, if you're a careful reader say, we are no different. We are the same. Yeah, well, even the way he talks about the rivers, we have a lot to talk about right here. Um, <laughs> because um, because the river yeah. was, of course, it's funny. It gives the people their sort of purpose and personality, but the river itself also is just, it's the force throughout in the book that he mentions it so many times and talks about it. It's flowing upstream, downstream, all the different parts that he mentions. is this Again, it's this passing of time. It's change but it's the same. It's still water. It's the same substance, but it's different each time. It's never the same. And um, I think it really, it, and I, I don't know, I'm, it just, I go back to, I'm trying to think about who it was. I believe it was, um, who was it that said you could never step and step in the same river twice. Yeah. You can't dip your toe in the same river twice. Yeah. I don't that's know right. who said it, but I know the quote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's river town. I mean, it was, the Yangtze River, the Wu River, it's it's changing. China's changing. This place, and especially, is never going to be the same because it's going to be flooded by the Three Gorges. And it will be forever gone. And there are parts of this that we'll never see again. There are temples that will disappear. There's the rock with the, the fish where they measured the, the height for centuries. And it's gone. Yeah, uh, I know. mean, I'm glad you brought up the river because, of course, that's the subtitle of the book, Two Years on the Yancey. You know, um, I thought all, as a book, there's beautiful nature writing in this book when he yeah. talks particularly about the rivers and the mountains. And on page uh, 126, 
when he's taught earlier, you had mentioned that like, you know, nature becomes a part of the story um, or it, it, like their characters in the book. And I completely agree with that. Um, and particularly these two rivers. So to your point about like, things are always changing. You know, where are we coming from? Where are we going on page 126? This quote is just perfect for that. All rivers have personalities. The Wu, clear, green, lightly traveled, comes from the mountains. One river is all about origin, the other destination. The Yangtze in its size and majesty seems to be going somewhere important, while the Wu in its narrow swiftness seems to have come from someplace wild and mysterious, and the faint forms of its distant hills suggest that the river will keep its secrets. That is one of the best quotes in the book for me because Mm. it speaks to the theme. I also love the way that he talks about when the Wu River meets the Yangtze and how like the different colors. Yes. Like the Wu is this kind of green, clear river and the Yangtze is this muddy, messy, murky kind of thing. And it's just perfect to see in that visual image where he describes the green meeting the brown, exactly what you're talking about. Like we have a history, we have a place that we came from. We're also going someplace else. So the river as metaphor in the book is very, very powerful. Very, very very strong. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, there's no doubt that that one was, you know, we could talk a lot about whether he's using the literature, whether he's using gender or whether he's using class or whatever he's using, but definitely without a doubt, the river as a metaphor, you're right, is clear throughout. And it's strange because uh, we don't think much about, we, we think about the mighty Mississippi, right? But name another river that has as much influence in the United States as the Mississippi. <laughs> no, right. And I mean, I teach Texas history and I can think of the Colorado, the Brazos, the Trinity, the Natchez, the San Jacinto, the San Antonio, the Pecos, any one of the Canadian, the Rio, the Red, it doesn't matter. None of them have the same meaning. Maybe the Rio because of its border between Mexico, but that's more of a modern time thing. It didn't matter as much back at the time when when Mexico and Texas were one and the same and it was crossing. But this, in this case, it does. And the Yangtze, I lived on the Yangtze for four years. And I can tell you, it is a muddy, it is a murky murky river. And yes, it's all about going somewhere. It is the river of business. It ends in the port in Shanghai. It Mm -hmm. dumps out into the sea, the the South China Sea. And um, it's, uh, it's a busy, busy place and has so many different things. And it travels throughout the entire uh, country of China. Versus I also lived down, I told you, near the border of Vietnam with the Li River, the Li Jiang. And that's a totally different river, just like the Wu. It's mysterious. It's sort of more still. There are fishermen on bamboo boats still using those birds to hunt the fish for them. It's, it is a, it, the people that swim in it. I don't see anybody swimming in the Yangtze River. <laughs> so it's kind of like the, it, it, I, I, can, I can actually uh, support what he says about this and just say, yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You know, that's exactly right. 
just like the, the signs of modernity, you know, the demand for these Nalgene bottles, you know, he talked about how <laughs> this became a status symbol to have these Nalgene bottles, you know, it's right. like, yeah, because it's this space age material, this modern, I have one, I'm special, I'm rich, I have, you know, I've reached, I've reached the, the epicenter of, of success and respect because I have a Nalgene bottle, you know, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's just all part of it. All of this throughout this, the same thing. And you can flip through the pages of this book, pick out a page and you will remember the stories that he told, you know, it stands out. Oh yeah. I remember Peter talking about this. I remember, Oh yeah. I remember the importance of this. And I feel like you could, you could talk about this book for days and days on end. And yet, as you mentioned, I mean, you're a well-read person. You have lots of books. You want to understand how reading, how people come about their reading, how people, the relationship and, and, and building a web of, of, of basically readers together to discuss and to, to maybe even inspire or to just examine. And yet Rivertown is one of those books that's just never really, you know, you don't hear about. And he's a, uh, he's a writer for Newsweek, I believe was, was his, um, uh, it's the New York Times, uh, the, the New York the New Wall Street Yorker. Journal, the New, New York Yorker. Times, Boston Globe, and Atlantic Monthly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, big time. He's a big writer. You know, he's not. Oh, yeah. Know. I ordered I ordered another one of his books because I found this book so well written. And so, you know, like I, it's, it's a 400-page book. I read it in two days. It's not a hard read. Wow. Um, it's, it's so captivating. And uh, like you said, we could go on for another three hours. I mean, we, there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover, but yeah, I, I did order one of his other books that talks about, uh, you know, dispatches from the East and the West, because yeah. I'm interested in this, in this kind of like, you know, the way that we've set up this false dichotomy between the East and the West and then I've put into my to-be-read list, which is growing every day, uh, this book. I guess what he's doing now is he has recently written a book about the Egyptian revolution and the, the changes that are going on in Egypt. Him and his family moved to Egypt, and he decided to learn Arabic and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm really fascinated by his body of work because it seems like what he's doing is he's he's trying to go to places that are going through drastic changes and to catalog or to tell the story to Western audiences in a way that I think is in a way that challenges the view that you would probably have of that society. Um, that's what Rivertown did for me. Uh, it made me intensely interested in learning, filling in the gaps of my own knowledge about China and so I think that that's kind of Hessler's project. Interesting. That's, and, I'm, and I'm really interested in hearing your response to that, how it made you want to, I think he did his job in sparking an interest in, like you said, lighting a fire. It says, huh, I want to know more about that. And I think that as educators, we're especially fascinated by change. We're change agents in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should be trying to inspire, whether it's changing from a norm to something um, unnormal that goes against a bad tide or whether it's just changing someone from the ledge back into a, a place of comfort or the most obvious one being change, obviously from ignorance to intelligence, you know, that's 
what we're trying to do is bridge that become the bridge between that. And so well, I think changes. Yeah. So go ahead, finish your thought. No, I've, I, I was finished. I just, was, I was change. Change seems to be a theme, like you said, and change is important. And it's especially important from our perspective. It's a, to see, you know. Yeah. And like, what I was going to say was, you know, when I set out on doing this podcast project, the entire goal aside from like connecting people and trying to bring books into conversation and stuff was just that, you know, I am interested in people's reading lives. I'm also interested in like what people read and, you know, thank you, Mike, for telling me about Rivertown for, you know, conversing with me about this book. It has completely enamored me. I am fascinated to learn more about this part of the world. Um, in addition to Hessler's books, I added, you know, a bunch of Chinese literature books to my, you know, to be read list and stuff like that. <laughs> um, it's, it's just so life fulfilling to be able to expand our horizons. Like you were talking about at the beginning, you know, you walked into the rare books room. Hessler's book seems like a rare book and I hope that other people will read it. Um, even for just capturing a very particular moment in the transformation of China, which is, you know, this 90s to early 2000s period. It's obviously very different now if you went back, but it's, a, it's, it's an excellent book. I really thoroughly enjoyed it so much. I'm really glad you did. It is a snapshot in a fascinating period. And I certainly appreciate you having me on, allowing me to do this too, because this is a book that changed my life. And so getting to talk about it is, uh, is, uh, is fun and meaningful, very, very meaningful for me. I've never had a chance to talk about this book with someone and to get to do it with you was, was extra special because you have a great insight and your experience and knowledge in the field of education, literature, and all that is, you know, if I was talking about it with, uh, you know, just my best bud, it probably wouldn't have the same meaning. So <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate that so much. Yeah. I appreciate you, Pete. Michael Hilliard teaches seventh grade humanities at the Brook Hill School in Bullard, Texas. His teaching experience ranges from teaching kindergarten English in rural China to first year study skills at the university level and a half dozen disciplines and locations in between. Michael spent 10 years living, teaching, writing, researching, learning, and extending a friendly American hand in Eastern and Central China. His current teaching role at the Brook Hill School focuses on American literature, where he engages young minds in literary analysis and Texas history. He holds a BA from Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, and a Master of Education from Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. Michael is also beginning his fifth year as the manager and head coach of an East Texas-based select travel baseball team, Banditos 2026. When time affords, Michael enjoys writing articles for his players at www.easttexasrippers.com. You can contact Michael via email, jhilliard at brookhill.org. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me 
rhizoleader at gmail.com or contact me through our Rhizomatic Leader Instagram account at rhizoleader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to an unedited version of my conversation with Michael. We discussed many topics that did not make it into this final edited episode, including how Peter changes over the course of the book, the role of gender in China, deeper insights about the students Peter taught, and more about Michael's 10 years living and teaching in China. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episode's link of our website, www.rizoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolowski, copyright-free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright-free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Keaton, and this has been The Rhizomatic Reader. Mm-hmm.